Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Tapping Against Crypto. Joining me today is Mr. Jonathan Miller, Managing Director of Crap in Australia. Mate, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's really good to be here, Pav. Nice to meet you as well. Yeah, now obviously Kraken institution for almost as long as anyone else really in the space. But could you sort of tell, I guess, our listeners a little bit, I guess, where you came from? I know crypto is not something where Kraken was your first sort of foray into the fields. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, kind of discovered crypto like most of us through a friend. <laughs> I was working in a really interesting co-working space. I was in a product development little business, little shop that we were running. And I mean, I had a background in kind of economics and, and political economics and a really keen interest in software and kind of became a self-taught software engineer. I quickly kind of transitioned into being more of a product person, learned my limitations as a programmer. But the guy that introduced me to Bitcoin, you know, came racing in one morning in a flurry and was like, oh my God, everyone has to read about Bitcoin. So I went and did a, a whole bunch of reading. What year was this? Just out of interest. This is 2013. So yeah, not, not super duper early, not like 2008. And then I turned out, I had a couple of mates who had been mucking around with it because they were playing World of Warcraft. And I learned a lot really quickly. And two things happened. One was, I guess it was the Venn di diagram of my interests. So I was really interested in, I guess, supranational currencies. I'd written some stuff at university on, you know, the European Union and the Euro and the kind of this idea that you have currencies ab above nation states. And then this idea that you have a non-nation state issued currency was really fascinating. So I think like from academically, it was kind of my first real driver around crypto. And then I met a whole bunch of people on the meetup scene and two things happened. One of those things was that we realized firstly that there were a few people that had those feet in two worlds and really understand. I guess at that time, you know, there was a bunch of people over in the US and Europe that were, were pretty strong on this, but people in Australia, there was a, just a limited number of people who had that product economics and some markets experience. And so, yeah, we met some really interesting people and started a consultancy. That was kind of one part of it. And the other part of it was we realized as well, that was so hard to get Bitcoin. So we tried to get Bitcoin and we were like mm. buying it from people at meetups. And, yeah. you know, uh, my buddy who was playing World of Warcraft had a whole bunch and, and there was like one, I think, way you could buy it over the counter-ish in Australia. And otherwise, you have to send your money over to Japan. Like, why Japan? Oh, there's this yeah. crazy exchange there called Mt. Gox. So we started sending our money over to Japan. We, we realized that we had a, a group of people that had a good mix of skills that could then turn that into a business. So in parallel kind of streams, I had a consultancy, did a bunch of work. One of the guys I worked with was a core contributor to Ethereum. We did a bunch of stuff, proof of concept stuff really early on a whole bunch of things with some banks, with some startups, all that kind of stuff. And in parallel with that, we ran an exchange. And that exchange, BitTrade got taken out by Kraken in, in 2020. So, you know, I had a kind of journey, yeah, well before I became sitting in this role with Kraken. Now, that's amazing. And I mean, just speaking to that, like, it, it really is interesting the way you described it, that there weren't that many people that could connect the economic benefits to something like a decentralized currency could bring versus the technological side of things. Everyone's just sort of thinking about ways to engage with audiences right now, like it's the best way to explain Bitcoin, right? Like what's new, what's different? And something I hadn't really read before, and it kind of makes sense. And I'd like to get your take on it. Like thinking of Bitcoin almost as like its own, you know, sort of nation or itself, like its own economy. It has so we've got the UK, now we've got the US dollar. It's almost like Bitcoin. It's not meant to replace it. It's almost its own sort of different ecosystem. What would you say is like your take on that? Do you think there's like better way to explain that? It's an interesting idea. I, I, I must admit, I've, it's the first I've, I've come across it. I've seen some papers on the idea of crypto as nation state, like pan-nationhood, 
which maybe this is that that's kind of a subset of what you're talking about. But I think one thing that certainly stuck out to me in terms of understanding crypto as non-nation state issued money as it interfaces with, let's call it the traditional world. And Wences Caceres, who was one of the, you know, PayPal kind of offshoot guys, and he had a, um, and still I think has an interest in in a custody solution. And, and he was really uh, very much a kind of like formative voice around, you know, Bitcoin advocacy early on. And I saw him speak at like Coin Center over in, in the US, probably 2017 or something like that. And he was talking about this idea that you have measures of value. And at the moment, the way that we measure, you know, the meter has a standard, there's a meter standard. When we have a measure of value for goods and services, though, they're floating. And at very base, in, especially for international trade, they, predominantly, and this is like a geopolitical kind of question at the moment, predominantly US dollar denominated. So I guess he posed a rhetorical question. Why is it that we use the instrument of one particular domestic economy for the measurement of global trade? Now, if you go and read a whole bunch of geopolitical essays, you'll understand why. And we don't need to go into like dollar seniorage now. But the, you know, the fundamental question remains, is there a better measure for value that we could use, like some sort of universal measure for value? And I think that argument still stands up as an interesting one, one that piques my interest every day, really, is whether you could start using Bitcoin as a value language or, or another crypto, but non-nation state money. And I guess, and you flagged, I guess, before our chat, you know, the stablecoin situation, all kind of stuff that's going on there. Oh, man. The stablecoin phenomenon is really interesting because it's kind of like the benefits of crypto technology, but really kind of on the crutches of our value language, our nation state yeah. value language. So yeah, so I guess, you know, to your point, does an idea of a, of a Bitcoin economy make sense? Well, if people start valuing things using Bitcoin, and right now, maybe it's too early, and perhaps Satoshi always b- believed it to be too early, that all, all seeing, all knowing, but you need to be further down the adoption track. And that's the real question is, how do you get there? But assume an end state in which you know, the mining reward for Bitcoin is really low. The mm. transaction value of Bitcoin is what, you know, supports the network. And the people start using Satoshis perhaps as a unit of measurement of some kind that makes sense in everyday life. When that starts happening, maybe then, yes, you could start talking about a Bitcoin economy. But at the moment, I think the value language, it's very hard to kind of cross these things over. So uh, yeah, we, we default back to the kind of fiat denominated way of thinking mm. about price, value, money, all those kind of things. No, that's a really interesting take. And like you sort of touched on, like, yeah, stable coins are almost like when everyone thinks cryptocurrency, like that's their immediate thought, stable coin, because that's like the, the first real use case. But like, I know there's a lot of work being done with CDBCs. And I mean, that's, I think, a conversation that's been going on for a long, long time. And, you know, whether it's here to come or it's, or it's not, I mean, there's been a whole lot of other interesting developments, especially, you know, with Australia, UK, US, a lot to do with regulation. I know, you know, both of us feeling on the exchange side of things. It'd be great to get your take on sort of where you see the regulatory angle sort of going from here. I mean, especially from what we saw at the end of last year, like that was absolutely just out of nowhere to some degree for a lot of people. It just seems like, you know, it's really up to every exchange right now to sort of, you know, how do you bring back the trust in the people? It sort of feels like that element of it all has been broken in a lot of ways. Like what's your sort of thoughts on that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, look, regulatory apparatus are usually reactive because technology is always faster than legislation. Just that's the nature of innovation. And that's the beauty, I think, of crypto, right? Which is that it's a hyper innovative space. And so the real trick here, and this is the kind of message that I think, you know, we've been sending and I think the whole industry in this market, but also globally, I think, you know, speaking of of Kraken, the view is that cryptocurrency has the potential to be you know, extremely useful 
but also will only be useful if we can continue to innovate. And if you over-regulate something or you use the wrong apparatus, then that innovation will be kind of stamped out. You know, the, the bright spark will be smothered. So yeah, at the moment, there's there's this kind of interplay of crypto as it currently stands and the way that people interact with it and where it, where it's used and the experiments that are being taking place and all the activity around it. And then the risks that, that I think we've seen with certain players falling over have then made the reactive need from the regulatory side, I, I guess, imperative. So, so yeah, it's a really interesting and critical time, I would say, for the technology because the last thing I want to see is the technology become just a marginal efficiency gain on traditional financial services, you know, because I think it, it could be much more than that, much more complex, essentially disruptive, right? So there's an interplay there. In terms of what, I guess, this year, what we're seeing and what we're seeing in different markets is very different. So the regulatory landscape from the US to, say, Europe, to then the UK, to Australia, to Singapore, everything is in flux. And so I think the other I'd hope is that there is some sort of harmonization and I hope it's not a harmonization around the chaos that we're seeing in in some jurisdictions. I think there's over regulation, there's under regulation perhaps, but there's all the wrong let's let's use the word wrong types of regulation. Um, you know, I think Japan is an interesting example of perhaps an overreaction based on Mount Cox. Yep. There's all sorts of regimes now and there's no harmonization. And it takes years for harmonization to occur because regulators have to you know, it's a political process, right? Mm. You can't just get together and say, yeah, these are the rules and it will never work like that. However, I think there are some really kind of like clear leaders. And if you'd asked me if the European Union was going to be oh, one of the know, regulatory right? regimes that was the clearest, yeah. the most understandable and consistent, it's a very consistent regime. Well, it's not a regime, but it, it's the start of a regime. But, you know, Mika and what it's arguing is that we have a solid baseline for thinking about this space. I would not have predicted that to be the case, that Europe was going to be the kind of steady hand here. So yeah, we've got reactive, we've got proactive. I hope that we can be a little bit more proactive and in Australia in particular. I think there's been some really good signs of that with, you know, the consultation yeah. that I know you guys are part of. I think, you know, there's there's a lot of open, transparent conversation between Treasury and Australian context, I think is one that we, you know, we're obviously really passionate about being here. But the risks are that we are again, another outlier. So it's for me, the real, the, the key here and, and the only way that we're going to see meaningful regulation is if, if there's harmonization between different regimes. And then, yeah, maybe does that then lead to trust? I'm not certain. I think what that mm. does is it means that for specific types of relationships where you have clients, for example, that are already regulated, it, it certainly can help. But from the general public point of view, I think regulations can be part of that. But I think the critical thing is for the operators to to show that they're trustworthy and and that's track record and and reputation only you know i, I think it's a misnomer to say that just because you have a license yeah. you're trustworthy we yep. see that in traditional finance you don't yeah, necessarily trust everything because there's a there's a number at the bottom in the footer of a, of a platform it's about the track record of that particular platform and that's the key thing that we want to and we hope we can bring you know to the conversation here is that when you have a you know i guess intentions are critical and so kraken's intention is to be a trusted and secure, but also a bridge, you know, for people between the crypto and the traditional finance world. And those intentions are very straightforward and transparent. The complexities that we saw perhaps with some of the businesses that have unfortunately failed in the last 12 months, maybe yeah. that's the reason that those businesses struggled was because the complexity of what they're offering was, it was too high. There was too much complexity and they weren't able to manage that. So, so yeah, there's an interplay there. 
certainly regulation is part of the story, but it's not the whole story. I think that the intentions and the and the actions of players and businesses in the space is is more critical. Do you see? Um, I, I guess the most recent sort of sanction that a lot of exchanges have seen, I know Kraken's seen, uh, and Coinbase is advocating against it too, is you know a lot of platforms being asked to shut down staking offerings, for example. Do you see that as more of a regulatory arm trying to be proactive, or would you see it as that being in the arm of reactive? Well, I think that it just depends from which jurisdiction, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So, you know, obviously in the US, there's been moves there by the SEC and Kraken has had to, you know, withdraw the staking services that we offer from that market. I think that fundamentally regulators are coming to terms with what staking is. And I don't think it's true that you can just apply traditional financial services legislation to it. There are people arguing that obviously in the US, yeah, then I, my personal opinion, obviously, but that's going to be a, a, a legal conversation that happens. And I hope it happens in a way that isn't like what's happening in the US, where legislation essentially is rolled out by enforcement. I hope that we can use and that Australia's got a great opportunity to find the nuance and see through the, the noise and look at whether there is a, an opportunity to create, think about regulation in a really innovative way that maps to the innovation of the subject. And I think staking is an incredibly innovative apparatus. It's completely different to the kinds of things that, you know, we've seen in traditional finance. It's a really fascinating area. And technically, I think it's a triumph of innovation. So the last thing I want to see is that get stamped out, as I mentioned earlier. No, it's a good shout. And I guess the other big thing that's sort of been circling in the news lately, Kraken specific, is, uh, I mean, timely, right? With all the noise that the banks in the US right now is, you know, Kraken looking to extend their offering uh, in the banking sector over in the States. Is there anything you're able to share there more? You know, it's, it's been a topic that's been brought up a little bit in the news articles lately. Yeah. So, Kra- I mean, Kraken has um, had a license in the US for a particular type of banking license out of Wyoming. And you can look it up. It's called an SPDI. And you know, we don't have to get into the technicalities, but it's not a bank license that allows for certain behaviors. It's it's a fully backed, I mean, essentially it's a it's a deposit taking uh, institution, but there's no rehypothecation allowed on that particular license. So the idea okay. behind, you know, Kraken having that license is that we wish to leverage that for our clients. And there's a timeline that I can't speak to in terms of the rollout for that. But yeah. I think that it's important to note that it it's not necessarily going to be something that fixes the problem that the US is seeing in general. What we're seeing is hyper, I would say reactive, but but preemptive kind of reactivity, if there's a word for it, from the regulators there, shutting down some of the major crypto-friendly banks in the States. And yep. that's, it's really unfortunate, I think, because the, you know, the actions of, oh, I think, Silicon Valley Bank, and there's lots of articles about it, are very kind of different to those of someone like Signature. And yes. yeah, it's, it impacts, you know, all exchanges because there's an interrelationship between markets and and the banking partners therein. So yeah, look, Kraken will be certainly rolling out services on top of that license that we hold, um, which is something that we're, we're really excited about, but no further detail, unfortunately, at this time. Damn. Oh, I'll have to try again now another time. I guess the other good thing that you guys are pouring into is NFTs I've heard as well. So Kraken NFT, um, what can you sort of tell us about that? Yeah, really exciting. I, I think the platform is designed to leverage, I guess, what we believe is a strong suit for us, which is security. Uh, the idea that you have a multi-chain portal, you know, okay. to, to view and purchase NFTs from other networks in the one interface. And that will also be, you know, something that clients can use via, you know, web and down the track API. So we've got a really, I think, a really strong argument, which is that there are like, it's very similar, actually, to what we, I guess, saw and what Jesse saw when when he mm. was over, like, helping out with Mt. Gox, which is like there's counterparty risk and there's technical risk and there's all sorts of stuff. Whenever you deal with 
with NFT marketplaces. There's so there's so many new ones, and especially in, in terms of the DeFi space, there's exploits everywhere still because it's super new. So we're mm. pla- you know creating a layer there for people uh, to be able to tap into multiple networks and purchase NFTs via our interface, and then have those custodied with us the same way that they would say if they were trading. You know, so yeah, that's a really exciting thing. Uh, we're whitelisting collections. You can't just buy everything, but you can certainly deposit and, and custody NFTs with us. There's lots to be done, I think, in the NFT space in general. You know, I think profile picks and everything is the start. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what's what's your take on the long term? Yeah, I mean, like, I guess, interestingly, before Jesse started Kraken, he had a digital assets business that was dealing in oh, right. uh, assets. And he comes from a gaming world, really, as well, a marketplace world. But digital assets are pretty much core to the to the kind of DNA of the founders. And so we've got a view that NFTs, and, and this is not a, a unique view, that NFTs will be you know, part of a digital assets landscape that are as big as the, the crypto market that we see today, at least, if not orders of magnitude more because of the potential number of use cases for using blockchain and NFTs, crypto assets, you know, to underwrite essentially user experiences in marketplaces for all sorts of goods. And that might even be IP, for example. So look, I think that there's, you know, a natural fit for us to provide a service like that where, where we are in the adoption curve for NFTs. It kind of reminds us of where, where we were when, I guess, when Jesse launched Kraken and was, and wanted specifically to create a platform that was strong and, and, and trustworthy in light of failure. And that failure at that time was Matt Gox. We've seen other things happen in the NFT space and obviously in the in the crypto space since, which is really unfortunate. I guess we thought we were beyond, we were past that, but we're not. I think that's what everyone that's been in the space for long has kind of cut about. It's kind of like, oh, are we past these kind of shenanigans? Like, it's just frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when the space moves so quickly, I guess, I, as I mentioned, I think it's hard because yeah, it the pace of innovation, and this is what's tricky when it comes to innovation in general, the pace required to remain relevant really requires risk taking and risk taking equals you know exploit you know so and we see exploits and and the teething issues i think will go on for some time so yeah we're we're trying to provide a layer that de-risks your experience when it comes to purchasing and, and selling nfts that's amazing guys like i know everything you guys have touched you know since day one there's always just been that theme of do it safely and it's here to stay so no doubt it's going to be an interesting one to watch Awesome. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Like, it's been amazing having you on. Mate, wish you all the best with everything to come. And, you know, I think it's going to be an exciting year. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty pumped after last year for some, some better news. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's looking bright and more than happy to come back and chat again, especially when we get closer to some, some material noise on, on, on the bank side. But in general, yeah, really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon.